0: It's precisely those four Gospels which, if you're interested in psychology, may I suggest something to you to challenge you? If you're ever interested, and you get in debates in psychology, surely somewhere in in your training or reading or courses, on what constitutes a normal personality, and you have tests to determine this. I mean, there used to be this stupid exam that companies gave their employees called the Minnesota something-something profile or something, whatever it was. Back about 20 years ago, uh, you really had problems if you wanted to get hired by certain corporations who had some idiot in their personnel department uh, crank out this this personality profile exam that they were going to feed everybody. And it turned out, fortunately, they pulled a stunt too many times and and they finally got hold of a Christian who had some legal training. And I forgot what the name of the corporation got, but they got hauled into a state supreme court over this one because a Christian had enough of this stuff, because he found out on the exam that the way they scored it was that if you said you relied on prayer on your job, you were abnormal. Dangerous type of person to hire for the job. Can't have people praying in this company. I mean, what's going to happen to us if somebody prays? So, the point was that this set up the concept of a normal personality, And anything off to the sidelines of the bell-shaped curve was bad. So, you see, the fallacy is, and we covered this last year in 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 Doctrine of um, the Fall, everybody likes the bell-shaped curve, and here's your little average mean. Now, just think about what that means. Just look at that bell-shaped curve for a moment. What is that a description of? A bunch of fallen, miserable sinners. So what's the bell-shaped curve all about? What's the norm? It's a normal sinner. Well, that's great. Now we've defined our personality to be normal when we, we, we have, as part of the statistical justification for this test, we've gone out and tried it on 17,000 people, and we've got 17,000 sinful people responding in 17,000 sinful ways, and we come up with that norm and we say, that's average. Then we make the, the false assertion that this bell-shaped curve, which is an average, true, it's an average, Nothing wrong with saying it's an average. But now we go one further step and we say, from here it's average, and then we define, arbitrarily define, this average to be the norm. Whoa, now wait a minute. How do you go from an average to a norm? What is your justification to doing that? That's a question you can ask in a psychology class sometimes. Suppose you go into a in prison and you interview a thousand inmates, and they've all stolen things. So what's the average ripoff? And we define that to be normal. So anybody that hasn't ripped off that much is a, no- isn't, you know, a good person, and everybody's ripped off more than Lenore, the average is a bad person. You See how stupid it is? But the Bible says that since the, the whole statistical sample is a sample of fallen people, then your average is a normal sinner. Therefore, you can't make the norm the ideal, and or the average the norm and the ideal. So, here's the, counter, here's the counterpoint to psychological profile exams. In engineering and science, we have a process known as calibration. I, I work with thermometers, I work with sensors that measure light, I, I work with sensors that measure humidity, and to do my work, I have to prove to my customer that the readings I'm getting are NIST-based, um, that is, they can go back to the uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology and, and say that it fits. So I have to calibrate my instruments. doesn't make any difference what the temperature says, the temperature is a number. What does that mean? It's calibrated. Here's the question you can raise in psychology. How do we calibrate the personality test? Are we calibrating it by the average? Where's the way you can calibrate a personality profile ethically? The four Gospels. The test is, if you administer your exam to Jesus as recorded and revealed in the four Gospels, what does your test score him? If the test doesn't score him as ideal, your test is wrong, because he's the calibration standard. And that's what we mean by righteousness. And it's that historic righteousness that is credited to our account in heaven, not in our hearts, in heaven. I saw an interesting article by a missionary, and I want to just read a section of it because it's such a good observation. Uh, It ties into what we're going to do tonight on faith. Because what we do in faith is related to justification because faith believes. Believes in what God offers. It believes in what God supplies in justification. Um, in fact, let me just make a few points about justification before I get to this, this article because I want to get in, into the cross point for faith here. So we said there's three, point, three four points in justification. We said it rests on the whole idea of creation and fall. We said that it must be the first step in redemption because you've got to get to plus one before God is going to have fellowship with you, before he can enter covenant with you. The third thing we said, that it requires an outside righteousness, not of man, but of God, directly given from Jesus. And four, which was very, very important, justification should not be confused with regeneration or sanctification as the Roman Catholic Church does and as Arminianism does. And we said there's a world of difference between Protestants and Catholicism on this point. So, I want to conclude by turning to, if you'll turn to page 38, bottom of 37, where we talk about heart-centered justification versus heaven-centered justification. You see, justification is a transaction doesn't happen in the heart. Justification happens in Heaven. Because in heaven Jesus is there, and it's his righteous intercession that applies his righteousness to our account. It's a transaction. We don't feel that transaction. It's done in heaven. It's what God sees. And what Luther saw and what Calvin saw. Now the Catholic Church got very angry at this. And Christian and, and later Protestants got angry at this. Because Puritanism and later later Protestant thought backed up here. They said, whoa, 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 we can't quite go along with Luther and Calvin here now. I mean, those guys, we, we appreciate them. They started this thing called the Protestant Reformation. But, but, but we have to wait and hold things back. Because, you see, the dangerous truth that Calvin and, and Luther taught was that faith is assurance of salvation. They didn't distinguish. Faith is assurance. And you can't, if you have no assurance of salvation, then you're not saved. It was that simple. Now, this was heresy to Rome. Rome said, why, if you ever try to preach a gospel like that, you're going to give people a license to sin. And Luther and Calvin turned right around and said, no, if we preach a gospel like that, it's a motive to godly living. Why? Because I'm thankful for what God has done. On the other hand, if I'm not sure of my salvation, how am I going to be thankful for what he's done? Now, my motive is completely different. It's to secure salvation, which is exactly what Rome has always done. Keep the people down, keep the people under the domain of the church, because we can't trust people with truth. Good night! What would we do if people had truth? Might might misuse it. Of course, the church misuses it all the time. But that's okay. We can do it. We we just don't want the peons to misuse it. See the arrogance? Arrogance. Well, the Protestants cut through that, and of course the Puritans kind of messed it up because then they started talking about various things which we're going to get into tonight. All right, the last point point then we wanted to make on page 38, as we conclude that at the top, is even Abraham's justification was promissory. God credited what imperfect faith Abraham had for the perfect righteousness which he did not have. Otherwise, there would have been no basis for an everlasting covenant of redemption. The security of the covenant of redemption is grounded on the fact that something must be ethically clean and plus one. So only later in history do we learn of the source of the righteousness of God, an actual, non-fictional, historically perfect obedience to the second Adam. Abraham didn't know that. He just trusted the Lord in his point in history that it was going to be supplied. That's the difference between an Old Testament saint and a New Testament saint. The method of salvation did not change from the Old Testament to the New. They were both saved by faith. Justification occurred the same way. It's just that the amount of knowledge, the quantity of information available from, what about this righteousness? What about this suspension of the judgment of God toward me? Well, how come he's doing that? How can he be so gracious to me, a sinner? The, The knowledge and background of that Uh, wasn't completely clear until Jesus died on the cross. And then they said, oh, oh, that's where that righteousness came from back in the Old Testament. It was all looking forward to Jesus. All right, now we come to the third area, and that's faith. We want to talk the rest of the time tonight about faith, biblical faith. And as I said earlier, when we were talking last year, we're back to the same thing here. The third paragraph under faith, you'll see... Where I say, by faith, I want you to just, if you look there a moment. I always say, don't answer a question until you've analyzed the question. And how many times last week did you beat your wife's class of question? You can't answer it without incriminating yourself. So don't ask, answer a loaded question. You redefine the question, then you answer it. And we get sucked into this. I get sucked into this all the time myself. I mean, I'm speaking out of the errors I've made. Now, you notice what I'm doing in that third paragraph. Careful, watch what I'm saying. By faith, I do not mean the generic term belief that is used in everyday speech. I believe the answer is, or believe that he means what he says. Faith, like election and justification, must be understood inside the biblical worldview. The following four points should help you think about biblical faith. Okay, so the first point in this understanding of faith. Faith depends upon God doing the initiating. So we say number one is here we have a person and when they exercise BF, biblical faith, they exercise it in response to the call of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That faith is not exercised without prior work of God. That's biblical faith. can't be done by an unregenerate, natural man living in a circumstantial vacuum. It can only be done as it was done in Abraham's case. God called to him. The voice of God calling. That's what calls forth the faith. So we find there, if you continue the notes, biblical faith isn't the same as everyday belief. Everyday belief is exercised by all men, believer and unbeliever alike. Biblical faith cannot be exercised by the spiritually dead, fallen mankind. After Adam's fall, Adam hid from God. Why did Adam hide from God? Let's think about that picture for a minute. It's not heavy theology. I mean, it's a picture. Adam hid from God. Why do you suppose he hid from God? He was a little afraid, wasn't he? I mean, why do you hide? You know, you hide personality aside, to you to avoid the situation because you don't like it. So that's that's why that's the way we are. So Adam, do you think this is a picture of trusting God? It's not trusting God. He's doing the last thing but trusting God. He's fleeing from God, and that's the natural state. That's the natural state of the sinner. He can believe the moon's going to come up, you know, in 30 days and cycle through, and he believes the sun's going to come up. But wait a minute. I'm not going to trust God because I can't really trust Him because deep down in my heart, I know He's ticked off at me. I've offended Him. And if I have a sense that I've offended my Creator, I don't really trust that He's going to be all smiles when I walk into His presence. So how do I believe? So you see, biblical faith can't happen unless the initiation comes from God's side. And who called to Adam? Was Adam saying, Hey God, I'm right here! Or was it God's voice that spoke first to break the silence? So always remember the picture you see in the Garden of Eden. Who spoke first in Ur? Was Abraham calling out to the heavens, God, if you're there, show yourself? Or was it rather that somehow God worked in his life to bring him to an awareness of himself? Okay. So that's the first thing. The biblical faith depends upon God calling. Second point on page 39, and this is where it gets a little hairy for a minute. Faith depends upon God's illumination and inclination of the human heart. So it's not just that he calls and makes a big noise. The second one is that there's an actual message that has content. Biblical faith is response to a message that must be understood deep in the deepest levels of our heart. A little child, four and a half, who trusts in the Lord Jesus may look to us as a very naive decision. But if we think that that little four and a half year old boy or girl is making some sort of, oh, well, it's just a little kid, I mean, after all. Think about this for a minute. That little kid at the time that they're believing, is also doing something that is the greatest act they will ever do in all their life. You know what they're doing? Four and a half? They're learning a language without knowing another one before it. And do you know that nobody knows how that happens? All the philosophers of the world cannot explain how a baby learns language. All we know is that if you take a baby and separate it from a human father and mother and leave it out with the animals, and if the animals can sustain the baby somehow, feral children, they don't speak. They don't learn language. So whatever this phenomena is about little kids learning language, they have to be around another human being that already knows language. It doesn't come intuitively. And this strange thing, when they begin to speak in language, they begin to also sense right and wrong. They begin intuitively to understand fear. For example, experiments have done with a child as they're learning language. And uh, never, uh, never forget this picture. It was in uh, Time Magazine many years ago. Had a desk, edge of a desk, and it had this little crawling baby. And they made, built this big, strong piece of glass out from the edge of the desk. And they did some experiments. And the child, when it was just able to kind of crawl, would crawl over the edge of the desk and out on the glass, probably because, perception-wise, he he couldn't see through the glass to realize it. what's down there? But as soon as the kid began to get a little more developed, without being told no-no, walks up to the edge of the desk, looks over, and stops. What made the baby do that? No experience of falling. No warning from the parents. Very interesting experiment. And what it suggests is that children come pre-programmed to learn language about this world. About its dangers, about its good things and bad things. Language is learned in this kind of a matrix. So when a little boy or girl at four and a half trusts in the Lord Jesus, they are understanding something, if the gospel has been explained clearly. there's a profound act. And they yes, they can believe. Children can be led to the Lord. Because they're also learning language. I mean, look at how long it takes the average person. I'm not a language person, but I've tried to learn three or four languages my time. Done a lousy job in all of them. But look how hard it is. Ever try to learn another language? You know, it's not easy to do. What do missionaries say when the kids are out there in the tribal, who bongo bongo somewhere? Who learns the language faster? Kid? The parents. Kid does. Why is that? Because we're slow. They're fast. They haven't got the wisdom. They haven't made 8,000 mistakes in their life, so they don't know how to do that very effectively. But they do know how to learn language and do it rapidly. So don't ever demean a gospel presentation clearly presented to a small child. They're right for it, because they're learning about everything else. Now, what we want to look at here is what does God say in the content of the gospel? On page 39... I'm using these notes here because, um, not that we don't have scripture. In fact, if you turn to Romans 5, Romans 5, 5, there is one key passage there I want to look at. But we all know the scriptures because we've been through them so many times. Look at uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 5. This is the content of the message that saves? Romans 5 says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. How? Through our speculations? Through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, for, verse 6 starts with an explanation. What is the love of God? For while we were helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the content of the gospel. That's what saves. Now, what we want to do, and I mention this in the notes because of the Protestant-Catholic debate over this. If you look at that paragraph, it begins with, what does he say? What is the content of saving faith? The first Protestant reformers, Calvin and Luther, insisted through the doctrine of justification by faith alone that saving faith... Watch this now. Saving faith was a trust in God's promise of full acceptance. That's how the monk Luther obtained his relief. Fortified with a doctrine of election that guaranteed that justification was irrevocable, saving faith was taught, and watch this one, as synonymous with. Assurance, faith is assurance. I, I keep emphasizing this because something's going to happen here. Here's what Calvin wrote, just so you can see it, because the later Calvinists did not—they departed from this. Puritanism departed from this. So that's why it's just not that Calvin's the, the the word, but we just want to make a point that this was taught by early reformers, not later reformers. It is a firm and sure knowledge. Note the two adjectives. Firm and sure knowledge of divine favor toward us, founded on the truth of a free promise in Christ, revealed to our minds and sealed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That was the breath of fresh air. Now, this next quote actually didn't come from Calvin. It came from a Calvinist uh, historical scholar summarizing Calvin's thought, so my note is inaccurate. It's not Calvin wrote. It's a historical theologian that wrote this. When we so examine ourselves, however, it is not to see whether our holiness, our works, or the fruit of the Spirit in our lives warrant assurance of salvation. It is to determine that such assurance is resting on the proper foundation of God's mercy in Christ. That's what we examine our hearts for. Am I trusting the right thing, the right object for my salvation? not doing a navel check to find out how many points I've got now, you know, such a good person, obeyed the Lord so perfectly, got to bless me now. It's not that. It's, I know that I'm a sinner in the eyes of a holy creator and I've offended him, how do I walk into his presence? Where's my ticket? How do I get assurance in my heart that he's even going to talk to me? by looking at Christ and the righteousness that Christ promoted. Both Romanism and later Protestantism reacted against this teaching. Wouldn't such immediate assurance lead to loose living? By denying the possibility of personal assurance, and underline that, that's the key. Always the attack comes here. You have no right to assurance. By denying the possibility of personal assurance of salvation, Rome kept her members under the discipline of the church. Later Protestants, especially Calvinists like the Puritans, tried to defend against Roman objections. Roman Catholics said this leads to loose living, so the Puritans tried to argue against them, but they, they misfired here by insisting that one could not really be sure he had saving faith until at the end of his life he was still persevering in faith. But think about that. It sounds very pious. But you see, what that does is, now I've got a question whether I've got faith in my faith. You see what a subtle shift has happened? What was the first? The first reformist said, what is the focus here? The, the righteousness that allows me acceptance before an offended creator. Is it Christ? That was the question. Now we've retreated over here to another question. Do I have faith? Is my faith big enough? Where's the center of focus now? Here. Where was the center of focus originally? In heaven. Massive shift with only a few words. Puritans produced long books on the morphology of conversion. The guy who was doing his doctoral dissertation was telling me about the book. Four or five hundred pages long. Puritans had some great stuff, don't get me wrong. But right here, they, they really didn't do too well. And the fact they didn't do too well is shown by, if you ever read through these books, these ponderous self-examinations where every week we go through a a fruit inspection of finding out, did I do enough good works today to convince me so I have faith in my faith? And it goes on and on and on like this. The cure for this is just to read one of these books. In a strange way then, top of page 40, In a strange way then, later Protestant came back to denial of the possibility, underline this again, the possibility of present assurance. Just as Roman Catholicism had insisted all along. Saving faith was no longer seen as assurance. So what happens here is that the first definition was that saving faith, SF, equals and is identical to assurance. It came to be that saving faith is sort of a question and assurance is over here. Now we've separated the two. That's the issue. So let's continue here. Through fear of antinomianism, a great truth was compromised. As a result, the biblical motive for Christian living was lost. Now watch this one and underline this one, gratitude for God's grace toward me. I want you to underline that because the next event that's coming up in the Exodus is a real neat illustration of this. Because everyone hears about the Old Testament law and, ooh, what a man God was in the Old Testament. When you read the Ten Commandments in chapter 20 of Exodus, I want you to pay careful attention to the first two verses. Exodus chapter 20, uh, I think it's 20 or 19, 20, I think it's 20 there. Uh, the first two verses, Just, we'll, we'll discuss those. But it has to do with this. The motive in sanctification has got to be gratitude for what God has already done for me. If it isn't gratitude, then I'm trying to secure something here. I am trying to be good enough in my Christian life to have faith in my faith. And it's a totally different motive. Okay. The original Protestant doctrine of faith was preserved only in small pockets of the church here and there, most notably, by the way, in the Lutheran Church and various brethren groups. Today it is still under attack as easy believers. Now, let me also comment, because there is a version of easy believism out there that has to be dealt with. And that's the idea, well, you can sit there and listen to the gospel and go out and raise hell. That kind of a thing. Now, that's not, Luther and Calvin would never have gone along with that. Now, you know, come on, give the boys a break. They weren't stupid. So, let's try to reason through how you can have assurance, and yet not be, uh, have this, quote, open door to licentious life. Okay, watch well, the next paragraph. And I want to, uh, we'll get into this a little bit in the, in the next point, too. So, so watch how we go through this. Is in faith in God's elective and justifying call really easy believism? Does his illumination, inclination to work in my heart give me license to sin? Is this gospel message the cause of false professions? Not, not if, Encircle circle the word if, not if, I don't want to be misquoted here not if it is understood properly within the biblical framework. The object of belief is my offended creator and his gracious invitation to take up the water of life freely. You see why we spent all last year, didn't believe me, did you? When we were struggling through creation, the fall and the flood, for crying out loud. Why are we taking a whole year to go through Genesis 1 to 10, 9? Give me a break, Clough. I've heard you go through Genesis 1, 2, and 3. I can memorize it. Why are we doing that? Because, you see, you can't get the gospel straight. Why we have easy believism today, we do have it. But why we have it is because G-O-D is never understood. It's looked like a sort of heavenly version of aspirin. Take Jesus into your heart. He gets rid of the pain. And then somebody actually trusts in the Lord and finds out they get clobbered the first thing because that's lesson three. And they can't get to lesson four without going through a trial. Nobody told me about this. Jesus is supposed to be a pill here. What's this? And then they peel out. Well, what happened? Was that easy believism? No. It was a misunderstanding of G O D and S I N. It was a misunderstanding of the message, not the message, that caused the problem. See the difference? Now, let me read you what a missionary has to say about this who works with New Tribes Mission. He's involved in Mexico. And. He's dealing with a problem in the Mexican church because New Tribes is a very good mission agency. And what they try to do is train believers to become missionaries so the missionaries can go home. You know, radical idea. Missionary putting themselves out of work. Of course. Who's the most effective evangelist in a culture? People who are already living in the culture. So why do white Southern Baptist churches send white people to black Africa when the black people are in the South? The stupidest things I've ever saw when I was in the Bible Belt. Sending white missionaries to black Africa. We send white people to the Orient. We've got Koreans and Chinese all over the place. Why not win a few to the Lord and send them back as missionaries? No, we're going to send some white people back there. And what do they see when they see a white person? A guy from the West. He preaches the gospel. Oh, that's a Western gospel. Never recognizes the Oriental gospel. Africans don't recognize it as an African gospel because it's preached to them by white people. So, here, New Tribes tries to do this. But here's what he's found when he's trying to do this. Here he is in Mexico, trying to extract himself from a Spanish culture as fast as he can. He's he's doing it right, because he wants to train the Mexican believers to be strong enough to lead fellow Mexicans to Christ. They know the language, they know the culture, no problem. Here's what he found out, though, when he tried to do it. I'm involved in a great deal in the local church here in Chihuahua. Some time ago, I asked a number of people in the Little Mission Church who uh, we were attending to, to explain how they came to know the Lord. Without exception, now this is a sad commentary, without exception, the focus of their testimonies was on how they stopped drinking, how they stopped smoking, how they stopped dancing, and so forth. Not one mentioned the finished work of Christ. What a testimony. What's that a testimony to? They could be Mormons and do that, right? You can go get therapy and do that. You know, they sell little patches now. You can stop smoking. Don't need Jesus. That's not a testimony. Yes, it's nice to say God changed your life, but in conjunction with what? A therapy? Or is it really the outworking of the Lord in your life? I was shocked, he says, by their responses, and since then I have listened carefully to other person's testimonies. The pattern continues. The element of the finished work of Christ is either completely missing or mixed in with what they have done or had quit doing to be saved. I was alarmed. Could it be that many people have really never understood the gospel? Could it be that the foundation of grace so vital to our growth as Christians is weak or missing? As a result of these questions, I find myself in a difficult position when these people decide they want to be trained as missionaries. I fear that to prepare to missionaries, we have to go back and relay the foundation of the gospel. And then he goes on to describe the problem. So my point in reading of this is simply to point out what I'm saying here with that big if. The problem of easy believism isn't the gospel... Of assurance. It is the fact of the prelude to that gospel. We don't know who God is, we don't know who sin is, we can't appreciate therefore the forgiveness we have in Christ. It's cheap. That's where the cheapness comes in. It's cheap because we've never realized our predicament before a holy Creator. And then it does come off as cheap. But that's not the problem. You don't have to say, well you've got to agonize and do this and do this and do this. The answer is, you need to understand the gospel better. That's the answer. So that we come to point three. After the message, then after God calls, faith depends on a cleansed conscience. You turn to John chapter five, verse forty-four. Here's the answer to the possibility that assurance can be easy believism. Just look at this rather sobering statement Jesus makes. John five, forty-four. He's talking to people who have rejected him. He's talking to people who, when faced with the issue of believing on Him as Messiah, would not, could not, or did not believe. They argued with Jesus, and He came back with this very harsh statement. And it's a really quite an alarming statement. He says, how can you believe? In other words, you can't believe the way you are. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another... And you do not seek the glory which is from the one and only God. In other words, in order to believe, the act of believing presupposes repentance. Repentance is built into the process of real belief. If I don't repent, if I don't, in other words, have an in-depth change down in the subconscious areas, and this is why repentance has to be a divine work. Yeah, we do it but it can't be worked up because we only are conscious up at the top of our hearts. What about all the got down below? That's got to be dealt with. And somehow the Holy Spirit does that. But Jesus says you can't believe if you don't already visualize who God is correctly and look and to seek and recognize the glory that can come from Him and Him alone. So the conscience has to be done. And to do that, obviously, I have to have my conscience cleansed. How am I going to stare God in the face? What happened to Isaiah when he saw the glory of God? He felt so unclean. So in my depths of my heart, how do I face him to say, Lord, I trust you, if he doesn't already deal in the depths of my heart with a method of assurance and cleansing? So faith depends upon this cleansed conscience. And that's why, of course, we have to say that it's a supernatural thing that happens. And we don't understand it. Now we come to the last point tonight on page 41, that faith can only indirectly be observed. And we come, of course, to the Paul James problem. And so if you haven't had that work through, let me go through that quickly, since we started late, excuse me if we end late. Um, Genesis 15 is not the same as Genesis 22. A number of years went on between these two chapters. James is talking about this, Paul is talking about this. So the first problem with people who see a conflict in the Bible is that they don't study the context very carefully. Is that one guy is talking about one act that happened in Abraham's life, and the other guy is talking about another act that happened in Abraham's life. Which one came first? Paul. Paul is talking about what started it. James is talking about what eventually happened as this man grew in faith. Now, if you'll turn to Romans 2. Romans 4, rather, chapter 4. And look at 17, verse 17. Hold the place at Romans 4, 17. And then also turn to James chapter 2. I only cite this because as recently as last year, we had a person in the chapel here who had gone to college in a college classroom, and the professor trotted this one out. Uh, 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 anybody so stupid as to think the Bible's the Word of God, my, you can just read it in five minutes and find a conflict. Well, that's the problem. The dear professor did take only five minutes and read it. That's why he saw the conflict. Let's look at Romans chapter 4, verse 17. As it is written, the Father of many nations I have made you, in the sight of him who will be believed, God. Who gives, blah, 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 blah. The emphasis in verse 17 is before whom? Man or God? God. Now, if you turn over to James, chapter 2, in verse 18, it says, But someone may say, You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. What's the issue there? Is it in the context of showing God, or is it in the context of showing man? Very simple, isn't it? Okay, so so much for James and Paul. Now we're going to just summarize the last two cha- uh, last two paragraphs on page forty-one. Last three, I want to I want to go through those real quick. Biblical faith as the presupposition of submission to God's total authority. Romans 1.5 is a key reference if you want to asterisk that reference because it says that faith is obedience. Faith implicitly assumes submission to the Creator. The obedience of faith, Paul says. It is the presupposition. Remember we started up this whole class a year ago with presuppositions? See how faith? Faith starts, faith builds off of this presupposition that comes to us because God illuminates our heart to it. The presupposition of submission to God's total authority will inevitably motivate behavior. Unfortunately, in the history of Christianity, there have been those who have arbitrarily selected some specific fruit as the infallible sign of saving faith. I don't know if you've been around the Church of Christ, but in the South it's a big thing. The conservative Church of Christ. In the Church of Christ, They hold that water baptism under that church's authority is the indicator of saving faith. Now, they they claim they don't believe in salvation by works. But, in effect, if you've never been baptized by them in their church, you're not saved. Period. Because if you really had saving faith, then you would be baptized in their church. See the subtlety? Now, the problem is this, and you've got to be careful here. Everybody's saving faith. You have ten people with saving faith that those ten people are going to have different patterns of obedience and disobedience. You can't arbitrarily say, number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, all got to show the same fruit. That's baloney. You didn't show the same fruit and you know it when you first became a Christian. I know it and we're just fooling ourselves to think that we all show the same fruit of obedience. Just have to look at two Christians and see it's a different pattern. Two kids grow differently. So you got to watch it there. Can't ram-cram and jam some litmus test to have, uh, whether saving faith is present or not. This is by external. See, faith can only be indirectly observed by an external observer. In Abraham's life, for example, he demonstrated trust, and this is where I said, it, if you haven't read the Genesis narratives, this doesn't flow too smoothly, but if you have, you know what I'm talking about here. In Abraham's life, he demonstrated trust in the land promise by leaving Ur, wandering throughout Palestine without ever actually owning any of it. Commentary in Hebrews 10, 11. Even when Sarah died, what did he have to do? He didn't even have a place to bury his wife. He had to buy it. What a guy! And he still trusted that the land would be his. And here's his beloved wife, who bore the miraculous child, and he can't even get enough land for her grave. He has to buy it. God has not given him the land. But he goes on, he believes anyway. So when you see these little acts of disobedience by Abraham, just, you know, we can cool it. His trust in his seed promise, shown by having relations with his wife 25 years, in spite of their infertility. Now, why didn't he just give up? Why did he go on? Think about it. Why bother? Because the miraculous birth of Isaac wasn't a virgin birth. Keep that in mind. When he finally did have a son and God asked him to sacrifice it, he, he had the coolness of mind to infer the doctrine of resuscitation or resurrection. Can you imagine that? Twenty-five years, you wait for this miracle child, you get him, he gets to be a teenager, and then God calls you out to slit his throat. Take the same knife, you just slit the animal's throat, and slit his throat with it, like to see his blood. Huh? Hello? You What's that? And he was so used to obeying that he reasoned. He didn't come apart at the seams. Because he put it together. He says, okay, now let's think this one through. Can you imagine doing this? Thinking it through to the point where he recognized, wait a minute. Sarah and I waited years for him. He was miraculously born to a promise. And God is a God of election. And his promises do not fail. So if I slit his throat right now, and he dies, God will raise him from the dead because God has got to hold to his promise. Can you the momentous thing this man was doing here. I've never seen this ever depicted in a play or an art. I mean, people have come close trying to do this, but it is one of the most famous scenes of all history. A man asked to make a supreme sacrifice of his only begotten son. By the way, the word only begotten that we use for Jesus, you know where that phrase started? In the Old Testament with Isaac. My only begotten son. Do you suppose that God called Jesus only begotten son because he wanted first to let Abraham go through this experience, have us read the experience and vicariously understand what it must have been like for Abraham to go through this awful mess. And then when he says, now folks, you saw Abraham over there? Jesus is my only begotten son. You thought Abraham had a time. What about me? I'm your God. And the the analogy is is valid between what Abraham had to go through and what I have to go through because of you people. So, Abraham was a powerful, powerful vindication of faith. But then we conclude, paragraph, the bottom one, but his faith wasn't perfect. And we all know that when you read the narratives. He failed to believe the seed promise at least twice, along with his wife. Both were implicated. Nevertheless, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament... And this is a question that uh, Donna raised last time. Nevertheless, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament claims that Abraham was fully persuaded. And that Sarah judged him, that is God, faithful who promised. Saving faith is not necessarily constant or consistent. Moreover, saving faith can become so weak... That fruit is practically invisible as seen in the lives of Abraham's great-grandsons. Read Genesis 38 to 49. Those are the seed, Great group, huh? Murdering their brother. Sell him off for, for silver pieces. Oh, man, they really show saving faith. Wow. Can you imagine those guys, those 12 guys, walking in and getting membership in the average evangelical church? what's your testimony? I tried to kill my brother, huh? so we gotta do some thinking about how God works in history and in our hearts but the story of Abraham and though we be unfaithful, you are always faithful and you showed how faithful you were to continue working through this family, a dysfunctional family, a family that had sin, a family like our families, and yet you continued to work your program in and through them. And for this, Father, this great um, event, this great memory, this great lesson for us, we're thankful for your your preserving it to us and illuminating our hearts to your character seen in and through these people and the events of their lives.